Well, do join me in standing as we come to read from Daniel chapter 6 this morning. If you have a Bible, I hope you I do have one open in front of you to our sermon text today. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find our passage this morning on page 743 of one of the Bibles that should be in front of you or nearby you. And we will make our way through all of chapter 6 this morning together. Uh, But I just want to get us to the point in our sermon text reading of taking you through verse 18, uh, where Daniel is there, cast in to the lion's den, and then I'll pray and we will continue on. So listen now as the Lord does speak to you uh, through his perfect word. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And over them, three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give an account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was found in him. And the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and satraps sought to bring or find a ground for complaint against Daniel, with regard to the kingdom, but they could not find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. No error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then the high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O king Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction, that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction. Sign the document, so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. And when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. And these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. And then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. The king answered and said, This thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, that is a law of the Medes and the Persians, that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. The king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. And the king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought down and laid on the mouth of the din. And the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords. 
that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's bow our heads once again. Lord, we know your truth is more precious to us than all the gold or silver this world can offer. Incline your hearts, incline our hearts, O Lord, unto your statutes that we may observe them and keep them. That your face would shine upon us even in this word through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might know your tender mercy, your grace, your peace, and your comfort that is found only in our Savior in whose name we pray these things. Amen. Oh, you may be seated. It was sometime last year that we introduced our children to a genre of stories I suppose you could call the, the, the treasure hunt. Not just books, but films along the way. And we eventually came to this fun family film that was all about finding uh, national treasure. And if you know how these kind of stories go, uh, they tend to have all similar climax-like scenes where the main protagonists, these key characters, they get to the point at the end of the story where they know where the treasure is. And of course, obstacles, traps, dangers lie in the way. And so in this particular movie, we got to that scene, they knew where the treasure was, they knew where they needed to go, but of course, danger stood in the way, and you face this inevitable scene there on the screen, which found one of the characters hanging off the ledge by just a hand. And of course, the main character reaches down and grabs the hand, and he simply looks into the eye and says, do you trust me? Well, she looks back at him, wondering in bewilderment and amazement, why are you asking me about trust? I need deliverance in this moment. And he says again, do you trust me? And she eventually gives the desired answer of yes. So he grabs her hand and lets her go, flings her out down below into the darkness onto a ledge that was safe and secure from all of the trouble. And I tell you that because it's true, isn't it, that trust... As one of the most, most basic needs uh, that belongs to ordinary people. Uh, consider what happens when trust falls apart. Uh, without trust, uh, relationships tend to crumble. Without trust, uh, we know that confidence itself craters. Uh, without trust, in so many areas of our life, it seems like everything is hanging by a thread. It may seem like everything is even lost. And I tell you that because in our text today, which is not just one of the most famous stories in all of Scripture, as one of the most famous stories of human history, it's a story I want to show you. It's all about trust. Because remember the scene as the original hearers would have heard it in Daniel's day. The context is that of exiles living in Babylon. God had taken his people and flung them by the hand into a foreign land that wasn't their home. And God had taken his people and flung them by the hand to serve a pagan ruler and serve among a people that were not familiar to them. And by this point in the story of Daniel, it has been at least 70 years have advanced in the exilic existence of God's people's life. 
And if you know anything about their life in exile, you might not be surprised to know that more than a few were struggling to hope that God actually would restore them from exile. Many of them were wondering, could they trust that God would deliver them back to the promised land? And so here comes a story, ever so famous and ever so powerful, that says, yes, you, you can trust God. It is for his people that he can deliver his people. Now you advance the story to our time and realize that even though the situation is different, we're in a different part of the world, the spiritual situation itself is actually relatively similar, isn't it? The Bible tells us that we're sojourners, uh, we're exiles on earth. We live in a land that's not our home. We serve governing authorities. The Lord has placed over us while looking to the ultimate ruler and authority who reigns above us. And for over 2,000 years, we've been waiting for what? The Lord to bring about his purposes. Or certainly it's almost 2,000 years since the Lord Jesus Christ said, I'm coming back for you. And how many exiles that claim the name of Christ continue to struggle to trust that the Lord is actually going to come through on his promise to deliver his people? How many struggle to trust that the Lord will bring about that promised provision and protection even when week after week, secret sins ensnare, week after week, the Lord doesn't seem to restore that which has been lost. Week after week, it seems as though the foe that faces us, the one whom Scripture calls a roaring lion that wants to devour us, is raging with seemingly unchecked power in our life and time. Do you believe the Lord is able to deliver his people. Can you trust the Lord while living among lions? That's the question I want to put before you today, and that's the theme that I want to put before you today. Trusting God when living among lions. Because I do trust that you understand that even, of course, we're not finding ourselves this day on a Sunday in a lion's den with ravenous beasts surrounding us. Scripture actually makes quite clear that we do face, even this day, Lions of sin, Satan, and death. And can you trust God when living among those lions? So I want to show you four lines of trust in our text today. And the first is this. Trust God amid your opposition. Look at verse 1. We're told it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. And if you've been with us in recent weeks in our study of Daniel, you know that this simple line in verse 1 uh, tells us something significant has actually happened in that ancient world. Uh, the kingdom has passed there in Babylon from the Babylonian power to the Medo-Persian power, where so many of our chapters have occupied themselves with that great king Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians. Last week, his descendant Belshazzar, king also of the Babylonians, but now who's reigning in Babylon? but a man named Darius, whom some of you might call Darius, a man who belongs to the Medo-Persian kingdom. And it's just one simple verse that reminds us, even back to chapter 2, when Nebuchadnezzar had this nightmare, and he heard this word from the Lord that in this nightmare symbolized there with these different materials that the Babylonian kingdom would give way to the Medo-Persian kingdom. And it, it's happened. 
So verse one itself is actually a word of fulfillment. Uh, Verse one itself ought to be a comfort to God's people that he brings about what he says he's going to do. That even in our time and space, every time that you see one kingdom pass to another, one power pass to another, one ruler, president, prime minister pass to another, uh, what you're seeing work out in real life is, let alone a principle of Daniel, that there's only one king who will stand at the end, that there's only one kingdom that will last for all time. And it tells us in verse 2 why he wants these 120 satraps to be scattered throughout the land. Uh, you notice the end of verse 2 is that so that the king might suffer no loss. And no, no doubt one of those always ever-present truths about human government is that they're always going to get what they want. And here is 120 satraps that are scattered in a delegated fashion throughout the kingdom so that Darius is going to get what he wants. But there to report, you'll notice, of course, at the beginning of verse 2 to three high officials. And one of these officials is Daniel. And it may have been strikingly surprising to people in that ancient world that an octogenarian Jew would be one of the three highest officials in the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, Kids, that just means that Daniel was in his 80s by this point in the story. He's quite old. He doesn't belong to the land. He's in exile. This is not his place. This is not his home. But he's one of the three most prominent figures in all of the land. And of course, as you know the story, he's getting ready to face what? A most difficult trial. The greatest trouble. The worst opposition of his entire life. Uh, Maybe you know that you can retire vocationally in this life, but you don't ever retire spiritually. Some of you are in your 80s. Some of you are approaching even your 90s. And do you not know that maybe your greatest opposition is still yet to come? That your greatest trial is still on the way? But it's not terribly surprising, actually, in according to our story, that Daniel rose to prominence because Darius and surely his other officials noticed what the queen mother had assigned to Daniel in chapter 5. Attributed to him was a, was a different spirit because look at the end of verse 3. He had an excellent spirit in him, and the king had planned, therefore, to set him over the whole kingdom. It's similar words that we saw at the end of chapter 5 last week with the queen mother speaking about this wisdom, this knowledge, this unusual discernment that belonged to Daniel, that the pagan people in the land, they noticed that Daniel, God's man in Babylon, he was altogether different. Uh, He had this different spirit in him. They don't know, of course, that the spirit within him is none other than the Holy Spirit of the great Lord Yahweh. And Daniel's going about his business, isn't he? In exile faithfully administering the duties entrusted to him in his ordinary job, and people begin to notice, still, through the faithful, dutiful work in his ordinary vocation, this guy's different. Some of you tomorrow will wake up to your ordinary vocation, where you go about your duties faithfully, humbly, obediently, that people say, there's something different about her. There's a different spirit in him. Uh, Certainly what stands out here with Daniel 
And the king's plan to exalt him, you see, of course, over the whole kingdom is a, is a restructuring of the org chart in the Medo-Persian Empire that generates no small amount uh, of opposition because the other powers in the land, the other people of prominence in the land, they don't like this idea of Daniel, an exile from Judah, being the king's right-hand leader. And so they realize that they need to hatch some kind of a plot to bring him down. Uh, they need to, to scheme for his disqualification. Yet look what happens at the end of verse 4. They could not find any ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Uh, now, students, that means, of course, that Daniel wasn't blameless, but he was full of integrity. That he wasn't perfect, but there was such consistency in his personal life, in his public life, that you wouldn't be able to find anything disqualifying in his past or in his present. And I hope you know the exact same thing can be said of you if you walk and keep in step with the Spirit, a personal life and public life, so consistent in devotion to the Lord that no disqualification could be found. So they need to invent some type of disqualification, don't they? Uh, what they realize is we need to make Daniel's lawfulness lawlessness. We need to make his obedience to Yahweh, well, disobedience to the king. So you see what they do. Scan your eyes over to verse 7. They come before the king and they agree that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to Darius, they shall be cast into the den of lions. And it's true that what they're doing here is, in many ways, flattering a pagan king's pride, saying, I'll let no one pray to any god or man except to you. It's not as though that they're ascribing to Darius in this moment a divinity as though he's the only god allowed to be prayed to over the next month. Probably a better way to think about it is, is they come along and say, hey, king Darius, what do you think about being a month-long mediator? that the only prayers offered in your entire kingdom must come through you. Well, a pagan king might like that idea, and he ends up liking that idea, but not before. You'll notice, of course, even at the end of verse 8, that he's reminded that the law cannot be revoked once it's enacted. Therefore, verse 9, King Darius signed the document and the injunction. So the plot is hatched. The scheme is in place. The opposition against Daniel is enforced. And kids, what I want you to see, even from this first section, this first line of trust, is perhaps one of the most basic life lessons you need to learn from the Bible. And the life lesson is this. Life isn't fair. Daniel loved the Lord, so he worked hard. Daniel loved the Lord. So he prayed a lot. Daniel loved the Lord. And strife and trouble only came as a result. Sometimes it's your very disciplined devotion to the Lord that a roaring lion named Satan is going to use to try to bring you down. Can you trust the Lord amidst your opposition? Second line of trust in our text comes now with trust God with your supplication. Look at verse 10. Uh, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God 
as he had done previously. I know a pastor who whimsically speaks about the church in which he grew up. It was a church that was pastored by his daddy. And it was a church that often had a visiting guest preacher. Uh, This guest preacher was there so often that uh, my friend came to know how he tended to introduce his pastoral prayer in the morning. And he says this man would show up and with great eloquence and great gravity, he would come to bring the church in prayer saying, Lord, we have many things to ask of you today, but first we want to give you thanks because everything is as well as it is. And my friend said when he was a younger child in that congregation, he never understood exactly why the prayer would be offered at the beginning that way every time. We have many things to ask of you, Lord, but first we want you to know we're thankful that everything is as well as it is. And what's always struck me about Daniel's prayer life, among the many things I want to strike you here in a second, is notice what the text tells us in verse 10, that he went and did what? It's not just that he prayed, but that he gave thanks before his God. Perhaps in the face of such opposition, you would expect him to give complaint before God, give lament before God, pleas for deliverance unto God, which I suppose would all be rather appropriate, wouldn't they? But he says, Lord, thank you. We don't know exactly what he was thanking the Lord for, but I wonder in the face of trial and trouble, if you, like Daniel, have this impulse for gratitude. Lord, we have many things to ask of you. But first, Lord, we want you to know that we're thankful how good everything is right now. But notice, first of all, the direction of Daniel's prayer. You see, he had these windows open in his house toward Jerusalem. And kids, Jerusalem was to the west. So you want to ask the question. I want you to ask the question. Why is the direction of Daniel's prayer to the west? What's to the west? Well, yes, it's Jerusalem. But the city was sacked by Babylon. What's to the west? Well, isn't that where God's temple is, where he dwells with his people? Oh, yeah, that was destroyed too. But what's to the west? Well, we know, according to later chapters in this book, that that Daniel knew his old prophets well. He knew that the prophets had declared God would indeed deliver his people from the lion's grip in Babylon and restore them to the promised land. So why is he looking west? That's where God's promise is. That's where the sovereign, sure word of God is. And I wonder if the direction of your prayers find this echo of God's promises, beginning, middle, and end. And notice also the devotion of Daniel's prayer. It tells us, doesn't it, that three times a day he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Uh, clearly, uh, Daniel knew not just the old prophets, but he knew the old Psalms. You can think of Psalm 55 where the psalmist says, evening, morning, and noon, I will bring my prayer before you. You know, students, you almost might think about this pattern that belonged to many an Old Testament saints as just as ordinary people eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So God's people need ordinary communion with God morning, afternoon, and evening. And the text says this is just what Daniel had been doing. This wasn't a new thing. This wasn't a public display. This wasn't a posturing of piety. This is just his normal rhythm. Three times a day, coming to the Lord to pray. And now we live in a time, don't we, where increasingly in our country, at least, many Christians are concerned about how courageous 
stands for the Lord might cause trouble, increase opposition. You know, if you still hold to a biblical view of marriage between being between one man and one woman, trouble might come along the way. You know, if you stand on the truth that God has created us, male and female, after his own image, trouble might come along the way. But I want to ask you a different question of courage from Daniel chapter 6. If our president made an injunction and made it retroactive, that everyone for the last 30 30 days who has been praying devotedly to their God, all those Christians that have been praying for the last 30 days with daily devotion to their God, would there be any evidence to convict you? There was much evidence, wasn't there, to convict Daniel? The enemies spy him out. They find out exactly what they need. And notice what happens in verse 12. Uh, They come before Darius and they say, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And Darius realizes, doesn't he, in that very moment, I think if you read the text right, you, you see that Darius understands he's been duped. He realizes further that Daniel is, is doomed. The text tells us he actually spends the remaining hours of the day, however many there were, trying to figure out if there's a loophole to get Daniel out of the den of lions. And he realizes there isn't. And so you'll see what happens in verse 16. The king commanded and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. You need to trust God amidst your opposition. You should trust God with your supplication. Line of trust number three, trust God for your protection. You know, one of the more popular images attached to what popular historians refer to as the dark ages is something that we might call trial by ordeal. Because it's in that medieval era when you were convicted of a crime and if you stood before a tribunal or jury of sorts and they couldn't figure out and necessarily discern with complete confidence that you were guilty, uh, maybe you were meant and made to undergo a trial by ordeal. Sometimes it's happened with boiling water. Sometimes it happened with really hot sticks. Uh, one of the most famous ones would have been you being bound up, weighed down, and cast into a deep body of water. And if you were guilty, you'd die. But if you are actually innocent, miraculously, you'd float back to the surface and live. But trial by ordeal, that actually stretches much further back into ancient history. Because that's precisely what's happening here with Daniel, at least in Darius' mind. Throw him into the lion's den. Daniel, I hope your God will deliver you, you see verse 17, a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den. The king sealed it with his own signet, or the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Kids, I wonder if you can think of another story in the Bible ever so famous of another one of the Lord's servants going down into a pit of death and a stone rolled in front of it. Well, we're told, aren't we, nothing about Daniel. That's one of the peculiarities of this story, isn't it? Daniel actually only says one sentence in the whole narrative. We don't know anything about what he was doing all night long with those lions. 
We do know something, however, about Darius. As the text continues, you notice the very next verse. It tells us that he tossed and turned all night. He couldn't sleep. He was desperate for Daniel to be found alive through this trial by ordeal. And so you can almost picture him tossing and turning there in his bed. He's, uh, as the night hours pass, he's like a, a young child staring at the clock, knowing once the minute rolls over to a particular point, then you're allowed to get out of bed. So you picture Darius. He's looking out his windows to the east. He's waiting for that sun to, to burst over the horizon because it's then once daybreak arrives that he can begin to go down and see what the situation is, and that's exactly what happens. Notice verse 19 and 20. Then at the break of the day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve, continually been able to deliver you from the lions? You know, I've wondered throughout the years of reading this story why he didn't just look into the lion's den. Ever wondered that? Why did he ask for something rather than just look at something? Well, maybe he couldn't see to the bottom because it was so dark at that moment in the morning. Uh, Maybe it was because he didn't want to look to the bottom knowing there might be some bloody, bony carnage beneath. I think actually what's better for us to understand is because he was such an anxiety and anguish as that stone was rolled away, as he was getting close where he couldn't see, that he just cried out in a loud voice before he got to the edge, Daniel, has your Lord saved you? And so you can imagine as he's perhaps running another 10 yards, five yards, to look over, he hears a voice, doesn't he? Just speak ever so confidently. From that cave, look at verse 21 and 22. O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. The king, of course, is exceedingly glad at this news. He realizes that Daniel himself, of course, is innocent. He realizes that Yahweh has delivered his servant. And I want you to know, That if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, what you come to, and we can say this reverently, can't we? The great lion tamer of human history. He tames the lion of sin. He's tamed the lion of Satan. He's tamed the lion of death. So just like Daniel surely was there at the bottom of the pit, looking up and saying, O king, live forever, as maybe his hand was on the lion's mane, petting it as you would just a little house cat. Such is the power of our sovereign Savior. If you trust in him, I want you to see what happens to those who don't trust in him. Because, of course, King Darius is not just rejoicing in this moment. He's realizing the retribution is due. Verse 24, and the king commanded that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel to be brought and cast into the lion's den. And this was according to another law of the Medes and the Persians, not just these men, but also their children and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones and pieces. Such is the outcome, isn't it? That belongs to everyone that remains in unbelief, unrepentance, that remains in opposition to the Lord, 
If that's you in here today, I want you to know that Daniel is preaching the reality of judgment. That what awaits God's opponents for all eternity is a lion's den of hell. But it doesn't have to be that way. Trust God amidst your opposition. Trust him with your supplication and for your protection. This is what it looks like to lead a trust-filled life when living with lions. And it means one more thing. Fourth and final line of trust comes at the end. Trust God in your adoration. Look what Darius decrees in verse 25 through 27. Peace be multiplied to you, he writes. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of lions. Maybe you know, and if you don't, you need to today, that a heart that shakes before the Lord, knees that quake before the Lord, in worship and adoration, is the most natural response to a God who delivers people from lion's dens. And of course, as this song is being sung throughout the land, is it not, as you look at it, a song of the Savior himself? For who is the living God? Who's the deliverer? Who's the ruler? Who's the wonder-working Savior but Jesus Christ? Have you ever seen all of the connections in this passage to the Savior that is to come? It's like Daniel. Envious enemies plotted against Jesus. Like Daniel, Jesus was arrested while he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was like Daniel, that a reluctant ruler signed the decree of execution. It's like Daniel, that Jesus went quietly and willingly to that pit of death. It's like Daniel, a stone was rolled in front of the pit that was Christ's grave. It's like Daniel, the next day, friends came running in earnest to see what happened that night. It's like Daniel, you see the end of our passage. Lord Jesus exalted to the right hand of power and prominence. It's like Daniel, the Lord's salvation is meant to generate universal praise and adoration of the king who delivers his people from lion's dens. I wonder if you trust the Lord can deliver you from lion's dens. How many years of my youth were spent listening to in a reading, a well-known theologian who was famous for a variety of things, but in certain circles, partly his fame belonged to his incredible courage for the truth, genuine bravery for, for sound doctrine. And I remember being shaken in, in some ways when I saw him on a panel one time and he spoke about his fear, fear related to death. Now he said, I don't fear death. I mean, what, what Christian should fear death? It's lost all its sting in Jesus Christ. But he went on to say, I fear dying, but I don't fear death. And kids, maybe 
you understand how being mauled, the prospect of being destroyed unto death by ravenous beasts, is one of the worst ways that you can go. And yet, what do you see with Daniel? He goes fearlessly and courageously. I believe it's because there's two final things you're meant to see about our Lord, the deliverer from this story. I want you to see two final things then about Jesus Christ according to this passage. Number one, he is the sustainer. Is it not just like Daniel chapter 3, that the Lord doesn't keep his people from the fire in chapter 3? He doesn't keep his people from the lion's den in chapter 6. But what does he do in both chapters? He's with them in the midst of their affliction and their trouble. And when God is with his people in the midst of their affliction and their trouble, isn't it also comforting and supernaturally peaceful? That's why even one old preacher would say of Daniel chapter 6, what with the lions and with the angels all night to keep him company, Daniel was spending the night watches in grander style than Darius. With Jesus Christ by your side, in the midst of that storm of suffering and sorrow, are you not in a grander situation than all the king's palaces of the earth could provide? He's the sustainer, isn't he? But he's also the savior. That's the second thing, no doubt, that you're meant to see. But I want to put two wrinkles on it. First of which, I want you to see that there is a corporate dimension to this salvation that Daniel would have been aware of. Uh, Lord willing, in two weeks' time, we're going to turn our attention to Daniel chapter 7. And one of the peculiarities also of the book of Daniel is it's not always in chronological order. So we're going to find a prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 that was actually given many years before Daniel chapter 6 actually ever took place. And it's in Daniel chapter 7 that Daniel sees the nation of Babylon likened to a lion. So as those exiles see the Lord delivering one man from the lion's den, is it not but an echo of that corporate salvation that's going to belong to God's church when he delivers them from all the lion's dens of this world? But it's not just a, a corporate reality to it. There's also this consummate reality to it. Because aren't you sure that when Darius got to the edge of that den, he did look down. And what did he see? My kids, you might say, well, he saw Daniel there petting the lion's head. Daniel there alive at the down in the bottom. But what, what Darius actually saw was a striking picture of the final full salvation of God's new creation. As Daniel knew a text in Isaiah chapter 11 that said the time is coming when the salvation of God's eternal promised land is going to be here. And it's there that wolves lay down with lambs. It's there that leopards lay down with goats. It's there in such peace and purity that little children walk alongside lions. And here is God's servant standing next to a lion in perfect security and safety. Why? The Lord had sustained him. The Lord had saved him. You must, and I pray you do, trust in this Savior today. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, your grace knows no limit. Your mercy knows no end. 
Lord, we may not be as devoted as Daniel, but we can have genuine trust in your salvation. Stir that within our hearts this day, and we ask it all according to the precious and beautiful name that is the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we do. Uh,